Hello and welcome to the Future of Australia podcast. Here I interview the entrepreneurs running the fastest growing businesses in Australia. These interviews will be around the themes of entrepreneurship, new ideas, business, innovation, capitalism and successful enterprise being the motor that will drive Australia forward. I will be telling the stories of the people who are making it possible and as they grow and strive further will become a bigger and bigger part of Australia's future. My name is Derek Stewart, your host and the founder of Future of Australia. Check us out at futureofaustralia.com to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter, get exclusive content and ensure you never miss an episode. For questions or comments, email me at derek, D-E-R-E-K, at futureofaustralia.com or you can call or text me on 0404-689-897. Welcome to Episode 9 of the Future of Australia podcast. In this episode, I interview Lauren Quaintance, the co-founder of Storiation, a content marketing strategy and production agency in Sydney. We discuss how she fulfilled a dream of being a journalist from when she was 11 years old to rising up the ranks of large media corporations around the world, how a linear and progressive career path was disrupted by the radical changes to traditional media with the advent of digital media and commoditized distribution, why this motivated her to start a content marketing firm. We discuss the future of the media, why brands are becoming media companies, female entrepreneurship and more. If you are a large blue chip brand looking for world class storytellers, editorial and content strategy and access to hundreds of specialised content producers across media, check out storiation.com. That's S-T-O-R-Y-A-T-I-O-N.com. To episode nine, I've got Lauren Quentence here from Storiation, uh, a fast-growing content marketing agency in Sydney. Welcome, Lauren. Hello. Thank you for having me on the show. That's all right. So can you give us a bit of context about what were you doing before you started Storiation? Sort of what did you study? What types of companies did you work in? What roles? Sure. I I started um, my life as a journalist. In fact, I decided I wanted to be a journalist when I was 11 years old and, and started working on the local newspaper, which was at the time I was living in Wellington, New Zealand. And uh, journalism really afforded me a brilliant career. I covered everything from uh, big news events like September 11, and then later in my career, um, really gravitated more towards long form investigative writing, um, and worked on sort of current affairs magazines both in New Zealand, um, Australia, and also worked on the Sunday Times in London. Um, I guess when I sort of hit my thirties, what happened is that I was being offered. Um, more senior roles in my very early 30s, which were more sort of managing editor positions. So I'd be managing multiple magazines and then later um, general manager positions for companies um, like Fairfax Media, where I was both managing the editorial side of the business, um, as in what is the content that we produce and how do we meet our audience's needs, as well as the um, commercial side of the business. So how do we you know, attract um, revenue from um, our advertisers? Um, you know, what are they looking for? And then finally, the sort of strategic side of the business, how does a company like Fairfax 
leverage its audience into new income streams. So as we all would probably know, probably listeners would know, you know, the media is um, hugely challenged um, and has been um, for a number of years. So before I launched Storiation uh, four and a half years ago, I was in those senior roles looking at how we could um, not only bolster advertising revenue, but also revenue from other sources. So it might be um, in our travel business, how do we then use that to get people to um, take tours um, and, and, and buy products that might be associated with travel at Fairfax um, so that we could kind of grow new income streams. So that was really where I was at in my last um, role in the media. Okay, so in some ways it sounds quite linear, like you had the childhood dream to be a writer and the passion and then you studied it and then you got a job with sort of the big brands and then you sort of progressed up the corporate ladder. Were there any detours along the way or in the early sort of path, was it a fairly sort of linear, not necessarily easier, but but a fairly linear sort of progression? No, it was fairly linear. I think you're right in the sense that, um, you know, my degree was in I suppose, English and international relations. Um, you know, it all came quite easily. I, um, you know, had won some major awards by the time I was 23. Um, I was awarded a fellowship to Oxford University um, and then later won to Columbia University in New York to get a master's in journalism when I was 27. So it all did progress in a very linear um, sort of fashion. I guess what I didn't anticipate was the disruption that was coming um, to the media. And so that was really when everything changed. Um, for me, um, you know, well, I, I, I did find it um, stimulating and challenging to move into these more sort of management um, sort of roles where we were unpicking this, the puzzle of, of how to um, build a sustainable... lot of downsides you know there was a lot of um you know making people redundant um you know cost cutting there was a lot of um you know challenges around leading people in that period of change and so um it, it did it did it did unfold in a very linear fashion but 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 the industry was essentially um had been you know um substantially um disrupted by the arrival of digital and if you had to pin a sort of rough date of when you started to really see that shift, because all industries and businesses have little hiccups and factors, but when did you really start to see sort of the tidal wave of change coming? I think it would have been around 2012, 2013, so maybe a year or two before I left Fairfax Media. I mean, I was involved, um, I was the only person with an editorial background on a, on a working group for Fairfax, which would have had about eight people on it, um, which was, you know, seconded, I was seconded to that project to really look at um, look at the solutions for the business um, and, and kind of some of the, um, you know, the, the proposals around digital payments and, and how we would, um, you know, monetise um, the content. And I guess it was probably at that point that I really understood the full... Um, you know the size of of the challenge that we faced, um, and it wasn't that wasn't in itself a reason um, to leave the media. But I think that probably there's sort of a you know the personal side of it, and um, and you know that the sort of sadness around um, the fact that I did believe in journalism and I believe in everything that the media stood for, and to sort of see perhaps the standards being 
um, reduced as we had to, you know, um, as we had to let more and more staff go, um, and that that became difficult um, to bear. And I wanted to be part of something that was um, a growth industry. It's sort of, a, you know, I didn't see myself as doing that for the rest of my career, which is sort of managing decline essentially. So, sort of five years before that decline. In your mind, did you sort of see the rest of your basic working career would be in those sort of companies and those sort of roles? I think I did. I think that, you know, I, prob- I probably saw that, you know, it was, it was heading towards um, publisher positions and kind of, um, you know, CEO of a division. That was my, my interest had become more in, in the business side and the sort of strategic puzzle rather than the editorial on its own. I think that... that um, you know, that I had made that shift, um, and I guess that probably, yes, five years before, I probably could have imagined that, that I would have stayed, um, in, in, you know, in, in more senior roles and publishers and, um, and sort of, you know, knuckled down to, to try, um, you know, develop a plan for a sustainable business model. And so this sort of ties into the next point. So obviously you saw the decline, but then how did you make the decision to start your own business versus, you know, working in a different industry as an employee, transitioning these commercial business sort of management skills that you had built up? How did you decide to to strike out on your own and, and start a business? I think I was really responding to an opportunity um, that um, my business partner, um, Mimi Cullen, and I could see. Mimi was also at Fairfax Media. She was on the sales and commercial side. And and what I was finding in those more senior roles is that increasingly I was working with major brands like Tourism Australia who were coming to Fairfax Media wanting to um, access the quality of its content creators, um, you know, to create solutions for their problems that were sort of content-led, which is to say they might say, you know, we can't get Australians to travel in Australia. How, Mm. through content, could we solve that problem? Um, But the opportunity that we saw was that Fairfax, of course, by its nature, wanted to lock those advertisers in to spend on their own platforms. What we saw is that these brands were on a journey to become publishers on their own, that that they wanted to be free of the shackles of media spend with particular publishers and they wanted to be doing it themselves on australia.com um, or other sort of their own social or you know, websites create content that they could then push out and reach audiences and we really saw that that was that was the future but that these brands didn't have the fundamental skills that publishers had because marketing by its nature is a different skill set um, to publishing and um and so, you know, they really didn't know how to create content that was really going to resonate with audiences on a large scale. So that was really, I guess, the sort of aha moment of, you know, seeing that there was an opportunity. And then looking around, we did quite a lot of work in terms of building the business plan and really reviewing the competitive set. And, you know, there were a lot of agencies saying that they did content and content marketing, but almost none of them came from a publisher background. They were had sort of were bolting it on as a service to their creative agency or their SEO agency or their PR agency, or if come at it from a different perspective. And so we really thought we could, we had something to offer. We thought that our skill set was unique within that competitive set. Um, and so we made the decision um, and, and, and launched the business in October 2013. 
Yes, this is definitely an interesting journey. Were any of those big advertisers trying to recruit you directly to just work in-house for them, basically? I think at that point, a lot of those in-house positions didn't quite exist. They were still grappling with um, what, you know, they were sort of still seeing what the path was themselves. So there would definitely have been an opportunity to go in-house. Um, I don't think those, role, those roles certainly, you know, did come up and, in the, in the, you know, they sort of started to be created in the year or so after we launched Storiation. Um, but to me, the, you know, the, the challenge of, of creating a, a business and creating uh, something that was potentially scalable was was probably a more interesting um, challenge for me than directly um, going um, in-house um, with a client. Mm. And so what was the first 12 months? So I understand this was the first business you've ever started. What was that first 12 months like, stepping out from these big, massive mm. corporations and institutions into basically you and your business partner and no one else, right? Just the two of you at the starting point. That's right. There was the two of us, except there was also my 11-day-old baby. So, um, you know, the, 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 the we're two women, which is a fairly recent, uh, you know, fairly, fairly unusual combination of two female co-founders. Um, and I had my second child um, in late September um, 2013. So um, in the beginning, um, there was Mimi and I, and then there was Hunter, who was... <laughs> Who was, you know, in the room asleep in a in a portable cot in the front room of my house where we were initially um, working, or in you know one or two cases came along to meetings. It was either walked around the block in the pram by a nanny, or was in some cases came into those meetings. And um, so at the beginning, um, you know, I, I don't. It's probably potentially crazy, but I thought that it could work quite well because at the beginning stages of a business, you know, till we had clients, we didn't really have a business. And so I thought that it would be relatively flexible because, um, you know, it wasn't that I was going into an office, you know, 12 hours a day initially. Um, I was going to meetings to, you know, to pitch for business. And so in between times, apart from the kind of mechanics of the business that you have to set up, um, there wouldn't necessarily immediately be a lot else to do. I mean, that may have been slightly naive, but we managed to pull that off. Um, and and so the beginning, that first 12 months, I guess it was, you know, focus really was was getting, um, you know, foundation clients. And we were very lucky that our first client was Citibank. So, um, you know, a very, very good blue chip client. And that was, that was, I guess, where we were pitching ourselves. We were always, our, our mantra was really about quality, I guess that we, because we'd come from Fairfax, we were most comfortable with dealing with big, large corporates, um, you know, blue chip corporates. It was probably our world. So we knew immediately that probably we weren't going to be selling content or doing content for, you know, SMEs or, you know, even medium-sized brands. You know, that probably wasn't our, both our pricing, our, our offer, our our entire approach really wasn't going to resonate with them where it was going to resonate was, was with those big blue chips, which is, you know, therefore you set yourself a big challenge when you, you go out to to um, get clients. But we were very lucky to have some good connections, obviously, from Fairfax and good um, contacts that we could draw on. Um, and, and very soon afterwards, we started working with um, Tourism New Zealand as well. So the first 12 months, I'd say, was really about getting um, paying clients and then, 
um, on a project basis initially, and then we needed to move beyond that 12 months to get them into sort of, you know, retained position, so we had some regular recurring revenue. Yeah, and, and some people that make a similar transition from a big corporate to, um, you know, starting a new small business, they find that um, there's a gap between, like, when they had the sort of masthead behind them versus when they're on their own. Did you find that a little bit? Like, when you're saying, hi, I'm from Fairfax, you get a different response, just like someone maybe who starts a tech startup, and when they're from Microsoft, everyone sort of, you know has a certain reaction, but when they're um, an individual, they don't get the same reaction? Or, or did you have enough sort of strength in the personal relationships with the decision makers that wasn't really a factor? Yeah, I think that, um, look, I think we, 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 we did have quite deep personal relationships and I think that that did help. I think that there's certainly, um, yeah, there's certainly a challenge. I mean, I, if I was on the other side, I'd be thinking, well, you know, your two people, um, you know, working out of someone's front room, um, you know, of course, and I'm, I'm a major brand and am I going to put my trust into you? I think that's a, a natural um, question. So I think that we did, we very much traded off the reputation we had at Fairfax and and we, we just, we, we over-delivered. We went, we, we did whatever we had to do um, to make ourselves um, useful to those clients to ensure that, that we, um, you know, that what we did was above and beyond what we had sold them um, at the beginning because, you know, we were in a position where we really had to, to prove our worth. Hmm. And so last financial year, um, your company grew 40%, doing, you know, about $1.4 million in turnover. Um, so what was the behind that sort of sudden big growth spurt and sort of what changed as you sort of grew suddenly, in positively and negatively maybe? Um, well, what was behind that growth, and we've continued, you know, that sort of, um, you know, sort of level of, of growth again um, as we come up to the end of another financial year, is um, I guess that what 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 changed is that it, we we moved from, you know, a kind of project related business to to one where it was underpinned by um, recurring revenue con- by contracted clients who. Um, you know, had um, you know a level of scale in terms of the volume of content that they wanted. Um, also, just the pure number of, of clients that we were servicing um, um, changed. I think. I think the. I think the biggest thing is that what changed during that time was that you know I, I could no longer. I was no longer across everything, and I think we probably changed from the consultancy into a fully fledged business in the sense that you know we worked very hard to. Well, the business you know has been built on the back of our reputations. It has to has to stand um, on its own, um, and so therefore we put in place a large, um, we put in a team, a really excellent team of of senior editors who have previously worked at um, you know the Sydney Morning Herald, um, who've edited Australian Traveller, um, other other magazines and, and and newspaper products who um, who are responsible to the clients and, and and own those client relationships, so that. I guess in the beginning, of course, I was across every piece of content that went out the door because my role, as well as being co-founder, is head of content. Um, but you know, in that year, we, we moved from you know where that was you know we changed from that being feasible to you know making it a more scalable business by putting in that layer of of support underneath us. Um, you know, 
we seen it was a hired more commercial um, um, support under MIMI, um, so more salespeople. So that's um, that's really where the shift has been. It's really um, just about um, you know a shift from from um, you know a very small business to one that's um, that's 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 growing fast and, and sort of ensuring that we put in the in, in the resourcing to, to to fuel that growth. Yeah, and so, I mean, at this point, I'd imagine, or at the end of that transition, you went from sort of selling a lot of your own advice and sort of time and effort, right, to now you're sort of more managing the business and winning business and strategy. Is that sort of right, or um, do you still write for any key clients, or is it more just oversight and business management at this point? No, I I never really wrote for the clients, actually. I mean, our model is that um, we have a number of editors in-house um, who are managing an external network of content creators. We've got about 350 of the external network of content creators. They are videographers, photographers and writers and our internal team manages them. So when, when you come along to a job, uh, give us a job in, um, and you're a uh, you know, health insurer and you need the, the best content creators who are subject matter experts in health, we have them in our network. Our internal editor is also a health previously edited a health magazine, has, has good ex- health expertise herself, will go and find the person in our network who's exactly right for your job because, you know, it might be that you're, um, you know, writing about Alzheimer's and the person who should write about um, Alzheimer's is quite different from the person who should write about dementia because they're actually um, quite different things and, you know, so they need the right subject matter expert. Um, so we, so even our, all our people internally don't write, they are editors, video producers and, and strategists um, and, they, and they're managing an external network of, of content creators and we make sure that the content we create through that network is on brand and on message. We really manage them very closely to ensure that it fits with the brand values and business objectives of our clients. So, uh, but back to your question, I guess that, yes, in, in the beginning I was being one of those editors. I was one of those editors and then, what, what, but but the, the shift that happened in the, in the time that the business really, you know, kind of scaled up is that, I, you know, am not involved in a lot of the day-to-day content creation. I speak at a lot of um, events um, and conferences. Um, speaking at Umbrella 360, which is one of the, the biggest marketing conference in Australia mm-hmm. next month. Um, I, I've, I've done those in India and Singapore and in Australia and New Zealand in the last few years. And, and so my, my job, I guess, I see now as being working on the business with Mimi in terms of, you know, what's our... You know, growth trajectory. What, what, where are we taking the business? But also, being a kind of evangelist for for what is good content, um, and you know, talking to our clients and talking to people um, in those sort of more public forums about what makes great content and how can they succeed using content. Um, and so that's it's quite a shift from where we were at the beginning. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. Like you said, it's that shift from sort of doing the work to managing the work, but from the start, the doing of the work was the editing rather than the actual content. So it's quite an interesting platform sort of model that you've created, bridging the, the, the brands with the um, the content producers but adding value through the editorial and, and sort of management of them. 
Yeah, that's right. Because, you know, I think it's one of the biggest, you know, misunderstandings is that, you know, I guess that any brand can go out and get a freelance writer to work for them. The amount of work involved in doing that is significant because freelance writers, by their nature, and, you know, look, I, I began as a writer, you write for yourself and to some extent for the audience. But here, for brands, the question is, you know, we're going to create something of value for the audience. It's not, um, we're not writing about their products, we're writing um, something of value. And I, I guess the the example I always use if you're selling vacuum cleaners, you're not writing about your vacuum cleaner, you're writing, I don't know, DIY, home tips, you know, how, how to clean your house, those sorts of things. We've got to add some value, but then the layer that our editorial team add is um, not only do they come up with those ideas, but they then ensure that it's that it's the tone of voice is correct, that, that it actually ladders back up to um, the objectives of our clients. And that's, I guess that's... Um, that's the sweet spot when those two things come together and the content meets an audience need. It's, it's It really connects with an audience, but it also aligns with what our clients um, need to talk about. That's when, that's when we have, you know, real success with that content. So it's a bit more, it's more strategic than your average freelance writer is, is frankly capable of doing. And even in, um, even in editorial settings, the editors always added a huge amount of value, editors and sub-editors, um, that is not seen to the average person. Yeah, and I think, like you said, if people come purely from a brand or marketing point of view, they don't have that context of the value an editor adds because they see the writer's name and they see the finished content and they don't realise, um, yeah, what went into that in the same way like an athlete has a coach and like there's this layer sort of above that isn't visible if, you're not, if you haven't been inside it. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's a good that's a good analogy. And I've, I've written about this before, you know, the kind of unacknowledged role of the editor. I mean, when I was, at one point, I was um, editor of Good Weekend in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, and, and I had some fabulous writers on the staff. Um, but, you know, I would say that 80, 90% of the time, the ideas, the stories didn't come from them. They came from um, myself, the deputy editor, and the assistant editor um, on, on the title, who, who had more of an idea about how to craft a headline, how to kind of package a story so they would have the greatest um, impact and connection with the audience. The, the writers themselves were fantastic at fulfilling that brief, but um, the brief had to be written by an editor. And then when the copy came in, there was an enormous amount of rewriting and massage and you'd hear three or four versions of this, of this copy before it was in a published release date. And that's the approach that we've tried to bring to our clients is that we're taking a publisher approach. We do, you know, for the written copy, we edit it all, we sub-edit it all, which means we fact-check it, um, you know, we check that the names and the URLs are correct and that when we add keywords, um, we are, and, and we also, you know, check that the grammar um, is correct. So, there's sort of a whole lot of hidden, um, you know, kind of uh, processes that go on um, behind the scenes. Yeah, and, and other people as well might not fully understand, like, how hard... You, you really can't be objective about your own writing. Like, you can't sort of self-edit. You really have to have a, a fresh set of eyes in order to edit because if you wrote it, you're attached to it, you've already got your sort of frame of reference and you can't sort of then sh shift that and look independently at your own work. No, I think that's I think that's difficult to do. I mean, I think that someone has to have in their head the vision of who they, the audience is and whether that's video content we're creating or it's, or it's, it's written content, um, 
you know, the, the person that usually holds that vision is an editor, not so much the writer. They have a, they have a vision for what the title might be, and and they have the, the, the deepest understanding of the audience. You know, the writer or the or the videographer will go off and create content. You know, with certain things in mind, they might like you know. You know, videographers, uh, you know, kind of a, a classic example of this, they might like a particular shop because it's, it's beautiful but doesn't actually add to the story. Does it kind of, you know, add value um, to, you know, kind of in, in any way progress the narrative of the story that, that's quite different. They're coming at it from a sort of technical point of view of, um, well, you know, the light was streaming in a certain way and that was a lovely shot. Well, you know, that's, that's, that's sort of indulgent if we're talking about an environment where people... Um, you know, you have about three seconds to grab people's attention in video content. So it's the same can apply to a writer in the sense that they, you know, might have laboured over a particular passage, you know, and then we have to do what we used to call murder your darlings, you know, which is, um, you know, kind of, you have to kill off some of those <laughs> things and sometimes it takes someone else to tell you that it needs to be murdered. Yeah, definitely. So we touched on earlier a bit um, the changing landscape in the media. So, and from what you've said, it sounds like the sort of the writers, the really good storytellers, obviously editors, photographers, videographers, those skills are all in some ways even, I guess, in more demand if brands are becoming their own mini publishing companies. And, and so those skills aren't going away. If you're a good writer, there's lots of opportunities available for you or if you're a great editor or you've got the background in these traditional mediums. But where do you see the, the future of those media institutions themselves, you know, the future of these legacy sort of newspapers, TV brands, radio channels and, and things which, like you said, some have shifted to digital, some haven't, but, but the, the sort of um, where do you see them going in the next maybe 10 or 15 years or, or what will happen to them? I mean, I, 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 you know, I'd be almost reluctant to predict the next ten or fifteen months, never mind the next ten or fifteen <laughs> years, because it's just moving so fast. And if you think about the, you know, really um, substantial challenges that the media face, and how how recently some of those come up, and I think of fake news as an example, um, then you know it is moving very, very fast. I think, I think, look, I think there are pockets of. Um, you know, hope in the sense that I do believe um, that there has been a bit of a flight to quality in the last um, couple of years. What we're seeing generally, and not just with you know media content, but content from all sources, is an absolute explosion of content. Um, you know, the the output of brands has also gone up you know, hugely significantly, but engagement across the board is dropping. So, you know, actual interactions with that con content, like shares, those are things that are drop dropping off significantly. Um, BuzzFeed, for example, the publisher of BuzzFeed has seen a 60% in, um, drop in social engagement, um, social shares of its content um, within the last three years. So, and they would generally be regarded to be the kind of the viral, you know, king um, and that's partly due to Facebook's tweaks to its algorithm, but it's part, partly due to just the content overload and exposure. It's getting harder and harder to get people's attention because the volume of content being produced is, um, is so significant, and the media is caught up in that as well. How do you, how do you, you know, create content that is, that is that is is getting that, is, that gets attention? Um, but in the midst of all of that, well, BuzzFeed has had that huge fall in social sharing in three years. The New York Times, um, shares of New York Times content has tripled. So I, I do believe that there are pockets of, of you know, glimmers of hope really um, like that that show that, that quality 
um, does ultimately, you know, win out. So I think that, um, you know, I would be reluctant if I were advising any media media company to move away from from an investment in the journalism that they create because that is all they've got to sell. Everything else is commoditized. Um, so if you're a media company and thinking, you know, what I, I, we don't need to cover, you know, the Korea situation, we should really just have more listicles about who wore what best at, at the royal wedding because that's going to get, um, you know, that's going to get immediate traffic. I think that that is a short-term um solution and the New York Times as an example has not done that, they've maintained international bureaus, they've maintained a commitment to quality and they've put up a digital paywall that is now um, you know, very much paying for the content, you know, it has been a successful model, so I think that those that, that stick to that approach, you know, do potentially have a future because you can find the who, what, all best stuff anywhere. It is commoditised. Um, the only role for the media is to not tell us what happened yesterday, but to tell us why it happened and to provide context and, and deep analysis and um, investigative reporting. That, to me, is the only role of the media. Um, you know, should really quality media, should, you know, can really um, play and build a sustainable business model off the back of. Yeah, I think you're right. And it, it has a lot of parallels, I think, across industries, sort of like a lot of independent retailers that are getting a sort of squeezed a lot by Amazon and eBay and large sort of platforms and they can't sort of win in a race to the cheapest costs or the fastest delivery because they're not Amazon. Um, but the ones that survive are going to sort of triple down on what they're special or different or things that can't be replicated easily because they've got an in-depth understanding or a unique advantage but trying to be a mass medium when that is like I said is distribution is commoditized is just not going to um to work sort of moving forward but how I guess that's the the million dollar question that exactly how do they do it but there's some shining lights like the New York Times which I think I heard is doing a billion a year in sort of digital revenue yeah. subscription so they're really um showing that it can be done, but you can't keep doing what you were doing before. Mm, I think that's right. I mean, I think that, you know, not everybody's in New York Times, and I do appreciate that, but maybe it's about um, doing fewer things and doing those things um, really well, rather than, you know, saying we're going to cover everything from the royal wedding to, um, you know, um, to the Korean situation. It's, it's what, what do we stand for? What are our kind of pillars? And rather than, you know, trying to spread yourself too thin and think, you know, we're chasing page impressions, we're tracing volume of page impressions because that is the, the um, you know, the model for, um, you know, digital um, ads. Um, you do need a large volume of content in order to produce an, an amount of, a certain amount of page impressions to earn any revenue. It is, if you can, that, that's at odds with um, a subscriber model which values quality. And so to me, you have to choose your path, and the New York Times chose a subscriber model um, path. They didn't try to do both, and because I think that your brand becomes very confused if you try and do both. Um, you know, you either focus on quality and, and, and trust that you will be able to, um, you know, enlist your, um, you, you know, the most dedicated segments within your audience to pay for that, or you you chase you do you get caught up in the volume game of you know covering everything and, and at a very superficial level just to you know kind of a churn of of, of of page views, but I think that 
you know, to me, the quality model and focusing on a few key pillars with a narrower group is, um, is the approach to take. Mm. So you're working with a lot of big brands, but you're also an entrepreneur yourself and I'm sure coming across other entrepreneurs who seek out your advice or just in, in general sort of business situations. What trends do you see in entrepreneurship in Australia? Sort of what are we doing well? What interesting things do you see? Maybe what could we do better or we're not quite as good as some other countries on? Mm. It's, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because I think that, you know, so many of the... Um, Businesses in Australia, um, you know, that, that we know, you know, really large, successful businesses were, were, were founded, you know, a really long time ago. You know, if we're thinking about the BHPs and so on, and um, in terms of entrepreneurship, you know, there does seem to be perhaps we're we're not, um, you know, we're clearly not doing as well as, as the US, for example. Um, and, and whether or not that's because there's less government support for entrepreneurship, I'm not sure. There certainly was quite an investment under Obama in the US. Um, but I think that where we do do quite well is, you know, and I'm a New Zealander, you probably hear from my accent, mm-hmm. but um, I think both in Australia and New Zealand people um, are pretty good at doing, you know, well with not very much in the sense that, you know, we... Um, there is a kind of a, you know, a kind of a make-do sort of attitude in the sense that we'll sort of, you know, roll your sleeves up and, and get in and do it. Um, and that, that is, that is, that is a kind of a, you know, a, a good, that cultural underpinning for entrepreneurship is, is a good starting point. Um, what I'd like to see, I wish I could say that I thought the trends were around female entrepreneurship, but I think that the numbers are still, you know, woefully small. Um, and, you know, I, I would like to you know, think that, um, you know, if anybody takes anything from our story, it's that, you know, you know, to be two female co-founders and, and one with them at the time of launch of a very small baby shouldn't, is not, a, not necessarily an obstacle, um, you know, to succeeding, that, that it is possible to do both. And I think that um, I'd like to see, you know, you know, be able to sit here in a year or two and say that one of the trends was that we are seeing more successful female entrepreneurs. So when you sort of speak to maybe uh, women in business that are thinking of starting a business or maybe they're running a small business on the side and they want to go full-time on it, what do you think are the biggest barriers or things holding them back from sort of taking the leap like you did and your business partner did? Mm. I think um, I actually think one of the barriers is that thing of doing it on the side and the whole, I mean, we probably, I mean, we, we were... Um, you know, pretty clear that this was in no way a part-time job, that we weren't doing this as a, you know, um, so that we could, you know, be kind of, um, you know, we could work less. We came at it from an approach that this is a, we're building a business and we're going to work as hard as we did at Fairfax, if not harder, um, wasn't about kind of, you know, a kind of uh, little thing we were going to do on the side. And so I think I think that one of the obstacles can be that sometimes because women, um do start that way, they start something on maternity leave and it's kind of small, but it's sort of a, you know, sometimes you just have to throw yourself into something wholeheartedly and then if it doesn't work, move on to the next thing. Um, not, you know, I think there's often a bit of a drift where women will um, have a business at a certain level and it's not quite enough to justify doing it itself, but they've got kids at home and they sort of just drift along at that certain level when, when really probably to succeed or, or to figure out whether it has the potential to succeed because that's the other question not every business is meant to succeed um, is that they should just throw themselves into it you know full time
time, you know, and just um, really launch into it and, and give it give it you give it your all for a period of time, and then assess whether that idea has its merits. And if not, you know, cut your losses and, and move on to the next one, um, at the risk of, you know, sounding like I'm um, a devotee of Lean In, um, <laughs> which I am a little bit um, of Cheryl Sandberg, because she's been, you know, she's been decried a little bit in recent years. But I think I think that often can be. And that comes back to confidence and it comes back to, you know, a lot of things about women um, believing um, in themselves in a, in a work setting. And um, but so, there, you know, there's definitely, you know, a whole lot of kind of cultural challenges around that too. Mm. So, so what advice would you give, um, you know, maybe to your 20-year-old version of yourself, knowing what you know now, who's, again, interested in business, maybe they're interested in sort of creative you know, media and production, writing, video, photography, um, when the tools are a lot more accessible now, and they're just starting out and they haven't come from the traditional media sort of path because they're 20, what tips would you sort of give them? So I'm giving to my 20-year-old self or another 20-year-old? Um, let's start maybe with yourself, tips that you'd yeah. give the younger version of yourself, and then we can do a bit of general sort of tips for another 20-year-old. Well, I guess, I guess if I was to talk to myself, I'd say be prepared for change because it's really, you know, it's an old cliche, but it really is the only um, constant. And so I probably couldn't predict what that change would be, but when it did come, I, I thought, um, you know, when the industry I was working in was disrupted, you know, I really thought hard about what my skills were and how I could translate those skills into a business. Um, I think that's, you know, probably the, the main piece of advice I would give myself Maybe the, the rate of change and the rate of disruption just was just wasn't there when I was twenty. But be prepared for the fact that you will have more than one career. That you know there will be change, and, and, and you will need to shift and adapt, and be prepared to be adaptable, um, and, and see see the positives and how you can can use your skills differently. Yeah. So, getting a little bit more granular, what sort of specifically do you think help sort of prepare people for change like if they're in a job should they be producing content under their own sort of name and their own maybe you know Instagram or LinkedIn or Medium posts or or, or just constantly be studying different things and, and building additional skill sets outside of their existing sort of job scope or curriculum at university? Yeah I think that um, probably having a, a you know your own personal brand, um, for lack of a better word, is not a, is not a bad thing to do. Um, that that you can then leverage into a different um, industry um, later, or um, and that means if you're you know being offered an opportunity to speak in the event, or you're offered the opportunity to take part in a podcast, for example, <laughs> that that you do it, and it's you know that it's um, it's it's good, it's a good exercise. It's um, and and it, and it will potentially be something that um, you can use on your resume later that you can that you can um, it forces you often to you know often speaking at an event forces me to really sharpen my thinking around a particular topic it forces me to get up to speed with the latest research and be really confident um, talking about it so in a sense it, 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 it crystallizes your mind around professional development it's not so much of 
you know, taking a course. It's just that, you know, have I read all the latest, latest reports around what's happening in this area? You know, how can I make sure that I'm offering as much value as possible to the audience that's in front of me? Plus just the act of getting up and speaking in large numbers of people is something that I think that everybody should do regularly. Um, and I think that that's, you know, a really essential skill is, is public speaking and being able to present to groups and it's something that women need to do more and to really embrace. Um, so I think those sorts of things, whatever industry you're in, are things that you can do to ensure that you're in the best possible position, um, you know, should that change, you know, um, come out of the blue. Mm. And so in other sort of, is there anything else that you would sort of think that, again, someone who's new to the workforce, just sort of maybe in their last year of university, interested in sort of writing and media and, you know, digital should sort of know or, or sort of, um, you know, advice you would give them? I guess that probably the biggest shift from when I was um, 20 is that you that you really do need to be, um, you, you know, have multifaceted skills. So, you know, when the media was, um, you know, uh, healthier and a much larger, um, you know, it was okay to be a writer and not know how to shoot um, any video. Um, and now you're probably going to have to um, shoot your, write the story, shoot the video, upload it into the CMS, you know, write the headlines. You know, you will be more of a, a multifaceted content creator. And, and I think that not being afraid of that and just embracing it. And I think that if you're a purist and think, um, all I do is write and I'm about the craft of writing, I think it's not that hard to learn some of those other skills um, to a reasonable um, degree. Um, you know, I, I, in my spare time, still do write for, uh, I, I write for Qantas magazine, um, a couple of others, just do some travel writing a few times a year because I like to keep my hand in and um, it's, it's good to, it's a good discipline to keep up your writing. And, um, and, and in, in, that, in those cases, we, we are now, you know, required to make sure we're shooting images that we're, you know, taking footage that could potentially be recut into videos and that, you know, you're looking at all the opportunities for content um, creation rather than just sitting in the corner with your notebook um, taking your beautifully crafted notes. Yeah, so I think there's sort of two levels of uh, multi-skilled there. So there's sort of, like you said, being skilled across different mediums and different specific creative production skills. But then there's also the being skilled across being a creative versus the business understanding, which you had a bit of sort of exposure to. Did, did you find that hard when you went from being sort of more focused on the content to actually making decisions and being responsible for a P&L and, and sort of having more of a business uh, skill set or, or sort of area? Mm. Well, I, th I think not everybody's suited to that and not everybody wants to do that. I mean, I'm, I'm the daughter of an accountant and a CEO. You know, my household, you know, we were, we were you know, we were people that um, comfortable in the business world and, and, and comfortable with numbers. My brother's also an accountant. Like it's, um, you know, that was kind of the world of my family. Um, and I, I, there aren't that many people, I would say, that come from kind of journalism background that end up managing a large P&L. It's not, it's, it's not, it's not really. In their, they're just not interested in doing it. Really, it's not. It's kind of not even just how their brain works. I think anybody can learn that. I actually think that um, you know. Um, it's it's not necessarily that I'm you know highly um, you know kind of financially literate or, or um, mathematical by nature. That's not in my necessarily. I wasn't born with it, but in the sense that I think that they shouldn't be afraid of that. Anybody can learn that. But I find that a lot of creative people just aren't interested in doing it. It's not. That's not what they want to do. I, I was lucky that I kind of I like the intersection of the sort of strategy, commercial and 
um, and finance really. I like I like the way, I like the way those three things come together and kind of how you kind of balance um, all of those within the business um, and how we balance those to deliver, you know, for our clients as well. So um, I like that sort of multidisciplinary approach. Yeah, and I think that's really what's needed to be in a position such as yourself. And, and again, not everyone aspires to that. Some people just want to get better and better at the exact at the specific craft or intersection. But yeah, to run a sort of business like yours, you've really got to have that backing. And and uh, so it's good that you yeah your combination of circumstances and experience helped sort of set that up for you. Yeah. All right. So. Right. so yeah. So, um, what about the storiation itself? And in the media, like you said, it's hard to predict even a year out. Um, and business is unpredictable. But what's your sort of ten-year vision, or, or what are you sort of looking towards, or working towards uh, to do with your business? Yeah. Well, I guess that um, you know an area that's growing really fast is video, and that's that's because there's just a a need um, for um, you know kind of. Uh, um, you know, video that 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 is not super expensive. I guess that, that clients are moving away from having one you know highly polished television commercial shot once a year that costs a million dollars to high frequency video that they can push out across social channels. And, we, and so that's you know an area where we're, we're seeing a lot of growth, and we will continue to grow um, our business. Um, that's that's very much um, you know kind of an immediate focus for us. I guess in the in the long term, um, it's it's I guess about maintaining our position as as the as um, you know the number one agency for quality content um, um, in Australia and New Zealand, and and, and expanding that um, into Asia, you know, to Singapore and and um, in other places in Asia, we really see an opportunity to to roll out our model um, in other markets. Um, so that's that's what I see us doing, um, you know, certainly in the next five years. Again, I'd hesitate to predict anything that's 10 years away since I probably couldn't have predicted that I would have been here um, five years ago. Mm. Um, mm. So, so sort of, yeah, focus on getting better and better at what you're doing and sort of bringing it to new geographies such as Asia. Um, do you have ever consider sort of launching your own um, media sort of publication or brand within using the resources that you have? My own media publication? Like um, like maybe a, the type of writing maybe where you see an unmet niche, like we were saying, like in a certain area of travel or, or something like that. Would you consider launching a, a sort of, you know, a small media brand yourself? Yeah. I mean, probably not. Um, I think, you know, we get to do that we're fortunate to get to do that for clients quite a lot where, you know, they want to launch a magazine, a travel magazine, and we, we do, we, we won um, Best Custom Publication at the Mumbrella Awards um, last year for a magazine that we launched for a client of ours called APT. So we kind of get the, um, you know, the benefits of all of that um, without um, some of the challenges that come with working in the media. And I, I think, um, you know, magazines are, are particularly challenged and, and it's a sort of, you know, the, the sort of a whole... Um, you know, distribution challenge that comes with that too. Whereas when we're working with clients, we've obviously got, um, you know, they've got a uh, an existing you know kind of customer base. So we have an audience and we have a distribution network that's already established. Um, so that makes that that uh, a lot easier. They also don't need to necessarily um, sell um, ad pages into those titles. So we kind of get all the creative benefits of launching a magazine and, and um, without 
um, or a digital publication without necessarily um, some of the, the sort of angst that goes with that um, from a media point of view. But, I mean, you know, I wouldn't, I'd never say never in terms of, you know, working in the media again. Um, it is, um, you know, it's, it's, um, it, is, it is still, you know, my first love and, you know, that's really, you know, you don't, you don't kind of uh, give that up uh, lightly when you, when you, you know, you're, you've been involved in journalism since you were 11. Yeah, definitely. All right, are, are there any final sort of comments or thoughts you'd like to pass on to the audience? No, I think that, that's it. I think hopefully that was of some use to someone out there. Yeah, and I think you covered a lot of really good ground and have a lot of useful insights. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thanks a lot, Lauren. Thank you for listening. I would really appreciate it if you subscribe to the podcast in iTunes and leave a review. Better yet, tell a friend about it who you think may enjoy the content and get something useful out of it. Feedback, comments, likes or dislikes, you can reach me by emailing Derek, D-E-R-E-K, at futureofaustralia.com or you can call or text me on 0404 689 897. Thank you.